A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. So you guys, Halloween is around the corner, and just in time for that, we have a new story about unmasking. Ooh. The unmasking scandal is when I sneak up behind trick-or-treating children and take off their masks while they're not watching. <laughs> That's both mean and un-COVID safe. I don't think we're having trick-or-treaters this year. Have you guys, has there been a decision, has the trick-or-treating committee decided on this? Oh my God, my neighborhood listserv is having a major debate on this issue. <laughs> I'm in I'm in a similar neighborhood listserv hell. Wow. Um, but it's a nice break from the neighborhood listserv trying to solve systemic racism. So I'll take it. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the Unmasked at Last edition. I'm Shane Harris. Uh, I have sworn off neighborhood listservs, by the way. I was on the Nextdoor app for a while. No more. It's just... Like, my blood pressure Mm -mm. is high enough already. Yes. I have never been on a neighborhood listserv, but I have sworn off masks. I don't wear them anymore. I am now unmasked. Therefore, you know, I'm totally ready for a new unmasking controversy. Very good. Are you are you taking Regeneron as well? Is that why you feel the need to take your mask off? I got some Regeneron. Wait, is uh, it Regeneron the company? It is. It is. <laughs> it is the company. And I, we got some, but we also got- Injected I, in your veins. They gave me the company. chloroquine <laughs> and I got, I got some bleach and some ultraviolet light. But no masks. The masks are off. I have been unmasked. Just stay away from Ben. Just stay away. Stay away. Well, you'll have to listen to him at least for the next 45 to 50 minutes. But that's okay. Uh, I am here, of course, with my good friends, Benjamin Wittes, Tamara Kaufman Wittes, and Susan Hennessy. Hi, everybody. Hi. You could be wearing masks or not. I wouldn't know because I- I unmasked. Unmasked. We get it. Okay. (laughs) Established. On the podcast this week, a Justice Department investigation into whether Obama-era officials improperly requested the identities of individuals from intelligence reports, we call that unmasking, ends with a whimper. An investigation into shooting the shooting of a protester in Portland raises questions about the federal government's use of force, and Cyber Command takes down a Russian botnet. Um, let us start with the great unmasking revelations, the unmasking of unmasking. We reported this story, my colleague uh, Matt Zeptoski and I, in the Post last night that federal the federal prosecutor appointed by Attorney General Barr uh, to investigate this question of who unmasked whom and when in uh, from the Obama era has completed its work without finding any substantive wrongdoing. Uh, the revelation that U.S. Attorney John Bash, who left the department last week, has concluded his review without criminal charges or any public report, by the way. Uh, is likely to rankle. In fact, I think is rankling President Trump at a moment when he is particularly upset at the Justice Department. 
Ben, start us off by reminding listeners who may at this point be getting very frustrated by uh, our repeated use of unmasking, what this controversy is, and then situate it in the broader allegations by President Trump about spying on his campaign from 2016. So the unmasking controversy, as everyone will remember, is when a large number of Trump supporters decided that a symbol of their loyalty to the president was refusal to engage in basic public health activity. No, oh, sorry. It's actually two or three years older than that. The unmasking controversy, such as it is, it was never a controversy among serious people, involved the requests by a number of senior policymakers in the Obama administration, in the White House and elsewhere, to disclose the name of a U.S. person who turned out to be Michael Flynn in a variety of intelligence reports in December and January of 2016-2017. And Unmasking, as Susan can explain in as much detail as you want, is a perfectly routine matter in which, you know, normally you have U.S. persons' names are masked in, and as well as corporations and other entities are masked in intelligence reporting. So instead of saying uh, Shane Harris and Benjamin Wittes and Susan Hennessy and Tamara Wittes sat around recording rational security, an intelligence report might read four U.S. persons sat around and recorded a U.S. podcast on behalf of, instead of lawfare, a U.S. person. And, you know, there are times when the actual identity of the person is relevant to the policymaker's intelligence information needs. And under those circumstances, that person can request, the policymaker can request that the intelligence community unmask the individual in question. And so uh, that happened uh, a bunch of times in, during the transition with respect to General Flynn. And Republicans have been convinced ever since that this was part of some attempt by the Obama administration to spy on the Trump campaign, a proposition for which there was never any evidence, and this unmasking wouldn't have been evidence in any event. Uh, so now it appears, as your reporting indicates, that the uh, prosecutor, John Bash, in Texas, whom Bill Barr asked to look at this matter and to, you know, this is part of his, uh, for every conspiracy theory, appoint a U.S. attorney and give everybody, a every U.S. attorney has a conspiracy theory to look into. And John Bash's important conspiracy theory was the so-called unmasking scandal. And he has now reported, uh, according to your story, that nobody really did anything wrong here. I will point out that the real unmasking scandal is the fact that a whole bunch of Trump administration people refuse to wear masks. Yeah, so the story is even dumber than Ben is telling it now. <laughs> so let's take ourselves back to March of 2017. So Trump has tweeted this infamously 
dumb tweet about the wires being tapped at Trump Tower. And this is a period of time in which people are still kind of taking the word and assertions of a president seriously and saying, like, why is he saying this and what does it mean? It's actually sort of being given specific attention. And Devin Nunes, uh, who was on Trump's transition team and was sort of a Trumpist from the earliest days, announces, like, very, very theatrically, uh, he has this press conference at the Capitol building where he issues this statement and says he has these great concerns. He doesn't think there was a physical wiretap of Trump Tower, but there was surveillance activities used against Trump and his associates. And if anybody has information about the unmasking, they should come forward. Nunes then very dramatically marches to the White House to brief Trump personally on this intelligence that he's found. Nunes comes out of the White House after this briefing to do this sort of bizarre White House press conference. Shortly thereafter, it's revealed that the intelligence in question had come from the White House itself. So sort of from the earliest days, this was ridiculous and manufactured. But I actually think it is a pretty good illustration of how the Trump world intelligence conspiracies uh, have functioned and have been allowed to flourish. So people like Nunes and the White House make a sort of facially absurd claim, right? So they say, you know, this improper political unmasking has taken place. And it's really hard to sort of credibly rebut those claims without access to the actual information in question, right? All you can say is, well, unmasking is a normal process. It's a process with lots of legal and compliance safeguards, and there's no indication from the outside that there's anything improper going on. That said, unless you actually saw the underlying intelligence, the the, the request to unmask, who made it, why, uh, you know, for what purposes and whether or not it actually sort of was in this valid and, and lawful sort of definition, uh, maybe, right? And so whenever you're sort of discussing these suspicions that are being raised about processes, there's very little you can say other than from the outside, it really doesn't look like there's anything wrong. Um, and then Trump world and Fox News um, sort of uses the existence of people asking questions and uh, a U.S. attorney's office sort of uh, taking over a review to then create, in this case, years of questions about whether or not, uh, you know, this deeply improper intelligence abuse uh, against the Trump administration actually took place, all to have it sort of crescendo into this sad trombone at the end um, of a U.S. attorney who, by the way, um, only said this sort of on his way out the door. Um, Yeah, I've wrapped up that review and there's nothing there. There's no report to issue. There's no uh, question of substantive wrongdoing. Like, there's just kind of nothing. And it all sort of collapses and deflates. That's the same thing that's happened in a bunch of different contexts. Um, It's just that different pieces of it have gotten uh, sort of more legs or less legs. And, And one of the things that's sort of remarkable is the number of different manufactured controversies that are collapsing in the days before the election. 
um, because it was always about producing these reports, making these allegations, these big indictments that were going to come. It was always about delivering, uh, you know, activity that would help Trump's reelection. Um, and so now that we've reached the finish line and actually there's nothing substantively there, it's kind of all just falling apart. We're seeing, um, right, that John Durham doesn't plan on re uh, releasing a report before the election. Uh, the unmasking sort of controversy isn't going anywhere. It actually is just kind of all like the air is being let out of the balloon. Um, and so I, I think the question we really have to ask ourselves is, assuming there's a new administration in January, how do we fix all of this, right? This sort of this playbook has been created. Intelligence has been dramatically politicized. It's been politicized and sort of represented in ways that large constituents of Americans don't trust these processes. Even assuming we have sort of the necessary change of administration, is that going to be sufficient? And how do we even go about like restoring these processes in an environment in which uh, we have really significant dysfunction and failure of intelligence oversight in Congress and, and sort of a media ecosystem that has for years, um, you know, gotten headline after headline out of something where it turned out there was absolutely nothing, uh, you know, no substance whatsoever. You know, how do we avoid it? How do we fix it moving forward? Jamie? I, I'm actually going to say that I'm not sure that is yet or maybe ever the most important question. And I'm going to ask whether perhaps the question we should be asking right now is, is this really over? I mean, in terms of how do we fix these mechanisms, I think it's notable that this investigation and the Durham investigation and the IG invest like none of these have actually panned out. In other words, the investigations have not succumbed to intense and intensifying political pressure from the White House and the attorney general to find things that would help Trump politically. Um, so I'm not sure that there's necessarily a huge problem inside the institutions absent that political pressure from the top. So that's that's the first point. The second point, though, is, is this really over? Let's remember that these um, manufactured scandals did not come about, first of all, to help Trump's reelection. They came about first because Trump was bound and determined to demonstrate that he had been unfairly treated in the 2016 election and thereby to overcome what he felt was the shameful uh, or humiliating suggestion that he didn't win fair and square, then it became, these investigations became an instrument to undermine the deep state, quote unquote, and then they became a tool in the reelection campaign. Like, I think it, even if he is in a second term, you know, if he does win, we don't know that this is over. And I guess this is my question for you, Shane, since you were bylined on, on the article in the Post about Bash's departure, we know Bash has left. And, and you guys report that the investigation is concluded, but there is also an implication in the article that it might just keep going under somebody else. Is that something we need to be concerned about? Well, I think that the conclusions have been reached. And you know, if another U.S. attorney is going to pick it up and, and and continue investigating, I suspect it might be 
partially just so the administration can say we're continuing to investigate. But it does feel like this report is complete. You know, that's not to say that the president won't continue to make hay over the controversy of unmasking. I suspect Donald Trump will do that, you know, until the end of his life or as long as he continues to be, you know, somebody with a public microphone, whether he is the president or he's a private citizen again. So in that sense, I mean, I suppose that even if the report has kind of ended with a whimper or the investigation has, it's still just as politically useful to the president as when it was ongoing, because he'll just continue to you know, decry the deep state and say it's all a conspiracy. And of course, if he loses, I suspect he'll somehow say there was a conspiracy to make him lose. So I guess it's just sort of the gift that keeps on giving. I mean, what struck me about this is, you know, incident is that the report itself is not being released. Uh, you know, when when have you ever known the Trump administration to not release a report or some kind of information uh, that it felt might be helpful to its case? Uh, so to your point too, Tammy, I think that here, maybe there's an example of the institutions kind of holding and doing their job. I mean, it sounds like this was not, you know, it may have been a politically motivated investigation, but it doesn't feel like political influence or bias steered it in any way. And that Bash came to the conclusion that I think everybody has from the outside who looked at this, which is that there's not really a controversy here. This is a normal process and there's no evidence that anybody's found anyway that it that it was abused. That's separate from the question, by the way, of, of who leaked the fact that Michael Flynn and Sergei Kislyak were talking and, and Flynn was found in a transcript uh, it was in, a, in an intelligence transcript. I mean, this, that's a separate question and kind of always has been. And it's something that the administration never tries to disentangle because it's not to its benefit to do so. Right. But, right, but just to be clear, that is not unmasking. Right. That's not Flynn unmasking. was never masked. In right. That exactly. <laughs> yes. Thank you. <laughs> Yeah, and, and look to to sort of respond to Tammy's point, which which I do take right the idea that actually this is evidence of a lack of politicization. Um, I, I do think that one feature that has emerged over the past three and four years is the investigation itself becoming abusive. So remember, sort of the early days of the Trump administration when Trump was tweeting about kind of the uranium one scandal, um, and it, you know it, there, it was pretty clear that there wasn't really anything to it. It was just kind of part of this Fox News talking point. And what did Jeff Sessions do? He said, yeah, yeah, I'll have somebody look into it, right? I'll open an IG investigation, right? And, and, and at that point, what he was doing, what everyone understood Jeff Sessions to be doing, was sort of creating a process to deal with the illegitimate claim, right? You just, you, you, you put it somewhere, you say, yeah, yeah, someone's looking into it, and you allow the process to, to play out in order to, to basically make it go away. Now, uh, what we see is sort of the existence of these investigations, the existence of these these task forces and these reviews themselves being used to, you know, create these sort of elaborate and wholly fictitious uh, stories that can be sustained for years and years and years. And so I, I do think we, we have to sort of reckon with the shift and sort of what we can learn about sort of the, the unmasking inv investigation specifically, how something can go on for three years, longer than three years, when there is absolutely no substantive evidence of any kind of wrongdoing whatsoever. H how did we get there? And, and how do we need to rethink these processes themselves? 
All right. Well, moving on from one big investigation to another, uh, the New York Times is out with a story uh, about the shooting of a man named Michael Reinel. I hope I'm pronouncing that name right, by the way. Michael Reinel was the um, far left, I guess we say, protester or Antifa activist, as he's been described, um, who was a suspect in the shooting in Portland of a far-right Trump supporter uh, who was shot and killed back in September. Uh, and then Reinel was surrounded by federal authorities on September 3rd, about 120 miles outside of Portland, as he was getting into a station wagon, and he was um, shot and killed by U.S. Marshals. That much we knew. Uh, but Tammy, this New York Times investigation is raising a lot of questions about the circumstance of that shooting by Marshall. So walk us through what the investigation found about the day that Reinel was shot, and then we'll get into some of the concerns that it raises. Yeah, Shane. So, I mean, kudos to the New York Times for pulling together just a huge amount of shoe leather reporting, data analysis, documentary evidence, and other records to basically sort of reconstruct this confrontation, uh, if that's in fact the right word, that took place on September 3rd. And let's remember, this is in the context of a lot of public comments by the president and the attorney general about the protests in Portland, about their frustration that local authorities in Portland and in the state of Oregon were not taking the same approach as the federal government in terms of seeing Antifa activists as some kind of a terrorist threat. And um, this is also in the context of escalating confrontations, partly provoked by the president's comments, um, between Trump supporters and Black Lives Matter protesters in Portland. So this guy, Mr. Reinhold, Michael Reinhold, was someone who self-identified as an Antifa activist. He had been attending the protests in Portland very regularly as someone who according to other activists and, and to his own descriptions at the time, was providing security, looking out for people who were trying to instigate conflict or confrontations at the protests. And when a group of Trump supporters showed up and sort of drove through one of these Portland protests, something happened, which is still not entirely clear. And Michael Reinhall apparently shot one of the Trump supporters. So he then went on the run. And uh, and this article is about what happened next. It was a couple days later, local authorities and uh, state and federal authorities working together figured out where he was or had an informant who told them where he was. And before a warrant for his arrest was even issued by the local authorities, the U.S. Marshals went out in force <laughs> to his location and ended up shooting him. Now, they claim that he was getting ready to run, that he was in his car. They claim that they saw him make some movements that looked like he might have been picking up a weapon or attempting to fire at them. And they also claim that when they arrived at the scene, they identified themselves and said, stop police. The New York Times interviewed 22 people who were either in eyesight or around the corner and then moved to see the end of the confrontation, 
Only one of them says that they heard the marshals say anything. The rest of them say that the marshals basically started shooting as soon as they got out of their SUVs. They sped up, intercepted Reinhold in his car, got out of their cars, and fired. And according to the the New York Times, they fired, um, I think, over 30 bullets from two rifles and two handguns. A number of these bullets went into nearby residences, nearly missed civilians, and a bunch of those bullets ended up killing Mr. Reinhold at the scene. So, you know, there are a lot of questions here about the behavior of the U.S. Marshals. There are, I think, a lot of questions about the context in which they were making decisions and the context in which they were or were not working in cooperation with local law enforcement. And, you know, the New York Times can't resolve those questions, but it really does help focus the conversation. And to me, it just heightens the the concerns that I think have grown over the last six months about the state of America's federal law enforcement agencies, how how much bias exists within their ranks? How tethered are they to the rule of law standards that we think they should be tethered to? How tethered are they to federalism? And you know, what do we need to do to ensure that whatever the Trump administration may have instigated or enabled or encouraged doesn't leave us with a deeply problematic set of law enforcement agencies? Ben? Yeah, I have a lot of thoughts about this. It is a very fine piece of reporting by the New York Times. And I want, this is going to come out sounding a little bit strange, but I want to hear me out on it. So as, you know, lethal police shooting cases go, this one I think troubles me less than a lot of the other recent cases that we've seen. So you're dealing here, I guess the the important salient background points is you're dealing with somebody who appears to have just recently killed somebody whose name is all over the place that he's being sought in connection with that killing, who I believe meets with a journalist or talks to a journalist, but does not seek to turn himself in, who is armed. And so the question here to me is how hot is it appropriate for the marshals to come in? Now, the Times raise a very legitimate question as to whether a bunch of them misrepresented the circumstances of the shooting, which is itself a problem, and also whether, you know, frankly, they came in way too hot uh, and didn't give him a chance to surrender. But it strikes me as this is a very different situation from, say, a Freddie Gray, not just because there's no racial component to this, but it's a very different situation from other cases of police using uh, lethal force. This is a person who, and a circumstance in which uh, lethal force may be appropriate, and the question is, did you use it too soon, or did you use it too quickly and without ample time for a de-escalation situation. So I would say there's like there's two really big questions here. And I guess in some sense, they're both familiar. One is, was the use of force itself appropriate? 
And the second is, was there a cover-up about the circumstances? And it seems to me this is the first of these cases in a long time that has involved federal law enforcement. And it's really important that federal law enforcement address it for precisely the reasons that Tamara just said. It's really important that federal law enforcement address both of those questions in exactly the way that you would want local police departments to do it when these lethal force cases arise locally. So it's an opportunity for federal law enforcement to sort of show what can be done and how these accountability mechanisms would work or should work. I certainly hope that the marshals don't have a situation in which they're they've kind of a bunch of people have circled the wagons on behalf of officers who, you know, came in way too hot and killed somebody rather than arrested him. Yeah. So I have, I think, more questions and, and concerns sort of from the initial read than than Ben does. So first of all, it's um, it's actually not clear to me exactly why um, this was a marshals-led task force. So it appears that it was the marshal service um, working in a task force with state and local law enforcement officers. Um, so clearly the marshal service has jurisdiction, um, but this is the type of arrest that would more commonly be executed by the FBI. And so I I think there's sort of lingering questions about why exactly the, the marshals did this, uh, why the task force was used, what what was the underlying rationale for that. Um, you know, I also think it shows real recklessness at an incredibly tense moment, right? This is, you know, there are these protests going on in Portland, sort of tensions cannot possibly be higher. Um, here we have law enforcement activity, whether federal or state and local, you know, that, that's reckless to civilians, um, you know, that, that certainly is not de-escalatory, um, you know, and, and has indications of, um, I think, more problematic conduct like, you know, waiting eight and a half minutes to even begin CPR. But the part that I think is most troubling to me is that it's not just a small discrepancy between, you know, the way that this was initially presented and the story that the New York Times is telling now. Um, so I went back and I pulled up the NPR article um, uh, that sort of first reported the event, right? NPR, uh, very, very even-handed. And I won't uh, read all of it and I'll sort of skip some sentences, but just to give people sort of a sense of how this was initially reported, um, the U.S. Marshals issued a statement, quote, initial reports indicate the suspect produced a firearm threatening the lives of law enforcement officers. Task force members responded to the threat and struck the suspect who was pronounced dead at the scene. Uh, it goes on to describe in, in a lot of detail uh, the uh, the sheriff saying that Reinhold had ran to a station wagon parked outside the apartment complex. Officers trying to stop him opened fire. It quotes witnesses as saying they saw two SUVs pull up. A man got out of the car, began firing a weapon. They said they heard 40 to 50 shots and that officers returned fire and hit the man. And so whenever we actually take the time to sort of go back and look at the story that was initially told versus our actual understanding of events, th that is not a discrepancy that is sort of 
easily explained away by uh, sort of the the inevitable confusion that that crops up sort of in in the moments and hours after an event like this. This is a story that is so at odds with what appeared to actually happen on the ground, you know, that I think it should cause us to um, really be suspicious of law enforcement accounts and, and the marshal service particular accounts of all of these events that don't eventually go on to get this really, really detailed treatment. And so, you know, Ben, while I, I, I agree, right, that uh, you've sort of, you identified, uh, you know, the right questions to be asking, and that there might be indications that this is sort of less egregious or, or clear wrongdoing than in some other cases, um, I, I don't think we should, we should sort of uh, extend the presumption of, of good faith in, in sort of the nature of the discrepancy here. This initial account of what occurred was false. And when law enforcement tells a false account about lethal actions, I think then they forfeit any benefit of the doubt. And um, uh, and we really do have to be very, very suspicious of any presentation of the circumstances that, um, that exonerates or justifies their conduct. And so um, it's not that I disagree factually. Um, it's more that I, I think this discrepancy is enormously problematic um, and, and really does point to uh, it being more than just you know, law enforcement officers coming in a little bit too hot, you know, but, but, but really grave misconduct that resulted in an, in an individual dying um, and, and sort of is the moment in which we, we should expect the, the most possible transparency and candor um, you know, from federal and, and local law enforcement. All right, uh, let's move on to more news uh, about, I guess we would call this news about election interference, but maybe more precisely the effort to combat it. Uh, In recent weeks, I'm reading here from my colleague Alan Nakashima's report, the U.S. military has mounted an operation to temporarily disrupt what is described as the world's largest botnet, one used also to drop ransomware, which officials say is one of the top threats to the 2020 election. Ransomware, of course, being uh, when hackers take over a system and basically uh, extort the victim into providing money or some other action to to let the data or the system go back to their control. Cyber Command's campaign against the TrickBot botnet, an army of at least a million hijacked computers run by Russian-speaking criminals, is not expected to permanently dismantle the network, but it is one way to distract them for a while while they seek to restore operations. Susan, start us off here. This is not the first time that Cyber Command has taken action against Russian hackers and particularly those engaged in election interference and particularly the the computer infrastructure that they use. That's kind of what Cyber Command is targeting here. We're not talking about them going after individuals. What is significant to you about this takedown and kind of how it fits as well into the way we're seeing Cyber Command evolve as a major player when it comes to combating hackers and, uh, and, and kind of viewing that as a national security mission, but also an election security mission. Yeah, so um, I, I think there's a lot of really sort of interesting things to unpack, and um, I would commend um, to readers not just uh, uh, the story as reported by Ellen Nakashima, but also uh, our colleague Bobby Chesney, who sort of wrote up an explainer of um, the interesting questions for a lawfare. Um, and I think this is a category in which um, there are lots of interesting questions and, and not clear answers. Um, you know, it's uh, it's notable to see U.S. Cyber Command engaging in actions targeting 
representing non-state actors outside the the sort of context of armed conflict. Um, it's uh, it's interesting to see if that's actually becoming a trend. Um, so uh, the the sort of trickbot uh, malware package um, essentially is a malware that's distributed across a botnet network of a you know I think the estimates is between one and three million infected devices, um, and it, it isn't just used for ransomware. So it was originally uh, sort of force designed and deployed essentially to drain people's bank accounts to steal money. Um, and then it's also been used for lots and lots of other purposes. And so it appears to have pretty sophisticated uh, technical capabilities. There's there's sort of lots of, um, of impressive operational security. The uh, U.S. government appears to believe it is connected to or controlled by Russian-speaking individuals, um, uh, although they appear to believe that this is uh, sort of part of Russian organized crime or potentially non-Russian organized crime that just happens to, there happens to be sort of Russian speaking uh, people behind it. Um, and so uh, we we don't just have a, a sort of evidence about what sort of this group of organized crime has done with the botnet. They've also rented it out to other people. Um, so it's interesting uh, that they decided to sort of do this in uh, in a public way. And, and I think I have real questions about whether or not uh, they intended to claim credit for this. So uh, essentially what Cyber Command appears to have done is disrupted this botnet sort of pretty significantly for a period of days, um, only to have it pop up again. And they are uh, framing their concern uh, sort of as being a question of ransomware and election security and integrity sort of specifically. Um, so I think that raises sort of the, the, the key question of is this uh, cyber command acting on the basis of some known intelligence, right? Do they have some reason to believe um, that there is a specific uh, credible ransomware threat against the elections right now, uh, or that there's a, a credible threat sort of related to this specific botnet, and that's why they took action? Um, or do they just have sort of general concerns about ransomware in the election, um, and this was an opportunity to sort of flex some muscle and show uh, show themselves sort of taking decisive action. Um, we also don't know, did it work or not, right? So was knocking this offline for a few days only to have it pop up again, um, is that a failure? And it turns out actually this is a much more resilient system than uh, than the U.S. understood. Um, or is it a success? Because really what this is about is you can mess with them over and over and over again um, and impose these costs. Um, and that really this is about sort of firing the first warning shot um, and warning not just the operators of, of this bot network, but also others, right, that if they do anything to come near election infrastructure or sort of threaten our national interests, they are going to come to the attention uh, of U.S. Cyber Command and, and sort of pay the price for that. Um, and I, I think you can tell an interesting um, and very, very strategic and thoughtful attribution story. Um, I also think you can tell another story, um, which is that the, the person who actually first reported this, um, although not Cyber Command involvement um, was Brian Krebs, who's a, a very well-known um, uh, information security researcher, um, who first reported on the sort of the attack on the botnet and it going down. And then uh, Ellen Nakashima, a few days later, um, was able to report that actually it was Cyber Command behind this. I, I think that could uh, lead credence to a theory that's a little bit more accidental, right? Uh, you know, Cyber Command takes this action. They intend it to be covert. Brian Krebs 
was, you know, kind of out, you know, smart enough to uh, to see it happen um, and sort of outs it. Um, and so then once the story has, you know, sort of the, the operation has been uh, reported or burned to the public, uh, then Cyber Command decides to sort of, you know, make lemonade out of lemons and, and claim some credit and uh, uh, sort of make the case to the public. And so I, I think it's just not quite clear yet um, and, and probably won't be clear for some time, sort of what, if any, of the strategic intention is here and like whether or not this is a success story or, or actually sort of a blunder. Tammy. Susan, I, I think like that question, to me, I'm really stuck on the kind of offense defense asymmetry of cyber war that comes out in the story. And so I think the question you're asking about like whether this was intended to remain covert or whether this was intended to send a signal gets to that asymmetry because what's clear is that the best they, you know, whatever they did only interrupted this temporarily. And, you know, as Ellen Nakashima says in the story, like they could just keep doing that, keep interrupting it over and over and over again. But the defense, the defensive tools basically suck compared to the offensive tools. Like there's this bot network, there's, you know, dozens of others. <laughs> and and if I'm a state actor who wants to use bot networks that may be developed criminally or may be developed by my employees to engage in malfeasance, I probably am working with multiple bot networks and I'm not only relying on one. And so it just, to me, really emphasizes the importance of having effective offensive capability because the only way to successfully deter in that environment I mean, at least like from from a political science theory perspective, the effective way to deter is to have really effective response capability against the people, the actors who are behind this, rather than to have the ability to disrupt or take the stuff down. That's what's actually going to deter. And, you know, that's where I come away from the story and I'm like, okay, what do we have? What Tamara just described is what Cybercom calls the defend, NSA calls defend forward, right? Which is our persistent engagement. You get inside adversary systems, you sit there over very long periods of time so that when they start doing things like this, you can respond very quickly. I love this story because, yes, it is not clear that it was a success. Yes, it is not clear that, I suppose it's not entirely clear what Cybercom was trying to do, much less, um, you know, whether the goal was to take it down for a few days in order to, these are essentially sort of cybersecurity drone strikes, right? Like the drone strike idea was that you do very targeted hits on individuals, often sort of Al-Qaeda middle management, and you can kind of change the strategic picture by relatively low impact strikes in large numbers over time, and that people who are attacking you should be at all times conscious of the fact that you may kill them or strike them wherever they happen to be. And there's something a little bit like this developing in the cybercom structure where, of course, you're not talking about lethal force, you're talking about takedowns. But 
this is a message if you're engaged in this kind of activity, the U.S. might take what is effectively military action against you. And, you know, you may not know the strategic purpose of it. We may not know the strategic purpose of it. But the idea is that, you know, we're going to be pretty aggressive about this stuff to the extent that there are election security issues potentially at stake or other really high value U.S. equities. You know, I'd love it to be visible what the what the measure of success is and that it was achieved. I do think we're going to have to think about that over time. But I do think this is the right posture. And in an environment, a cyber environment as dangerous as this one, we've erred on the side of hyper caution long enough. I think it's really time to start, you know, put these people on a kind of notice that we will hit them when we can. Yeah, I mean, look, I'm always wary of sort of reaching for analogies in this context because I, I think they more often sort of lead us astray than um, than really sort of shedding light. I'm also a little bit wary. Like, I, I agree, this is clearly uh, another example of the persistent engagement defense forward strategy. I have a little bit of a sort of suspicion of how new this really is versus how much this is branding. So um, I used to walk by this poster. Um, uh, between my office and the cafeteria at Fort Meade. And it was like this orange sort of cartoon dragon. And it said, um, raising the cost to the adversary. And it was always just sort of this like inscrutable, like, is the dragon the adversary? Are we the adversary? Like, what does this mean? You're the dragon. Um, exactly. Right. Like, why is it uh, orange? And why is it orange? What does it mean? I the dragon spend way is the too cost. much time like thinking oh, about uh, like what exactly the uh, the, the message was here. Um, but right, the, this concept of raising the cost of the adversary and sort of I- inserting friction, you know, making it more expensive, uh, you know, more time consuming, harder to do it without getting caught. This is this has kind of been the core of NSA's mission for a long time. And and yes, I do think there's been a focus between um, inserting that friction, sort of like. At, at our doorstep and um, and sort of making it a really sort of deterrence by denial model and, and a model that's very sort of um, uh, self-security focused versus this um, this defend forward engagement where you're now taking that um, uh, sort of deeper into adversary systems. Um, I, I do think there is one clear message from this story and sort of th- that it, it does offer sort of another piece in a puzzle that's uh, that's been playing out since 2018. Um, and that's that it is clear that U.S. Cyber Command is going to play a very significant, aggressive and forward-leaning role in responding in real time to threats to election security. Um, so in 2018, right, we saw this story of um, Cyber Command operators like sending messages, um, uh, you know, to, to Russian actors in real time, sort of like a we see you and we know who you are type messaging. Uh, they've been sort of quiet about what exactly the role Cyber Command um, is going to play in in this election, uh, in the 2020 election, they've, they've been a, l- a little bit quiet in the past two years and have really allowed uh, DHS and CISA to take a much uh, more sort of fulsome public role. Um, and so I, I do think, though, this is like a little bit of a hint that Cyber Command is going to be uh, very busy in the coming weeks and that when the story is told about what happened in the 2020 election and, uh, you know, sort of the cyber threats and how they 
they were responded to and encountered, um, that, that Cyber Command is going to play a very, very large part of that story, um, even though they're sort of the full extent of their role is not clear now. Um, and so I, I think it's really interesting that they're not just branding this uh, a Cyber Command, you know, versus sort of the bad guy story, but in a specific election security story. Um, I, I do think that's a, a little bit of a tell of how significant of a role they might be playing behind the scenes. All right. Let us move on now to object lessons. Ben, what crow-related paraphernalia have you brought for us today? No crows. <laughs> no crows. Although I will refer everybody to the awesome crow or no crow Twitter game that one of my Corvid enthusiasts, um, uh, scientists uh, has. Is that like, is it a chihuahua or a blueberry muffin? Correct. She (laughs) posts, like people send her images of blackbirds and she uh, does crow or no crow and people try to figure out if it's a crow and then she explains how you know if it's a crow. How you know if it's a crow. It's kind of awesome. Uh, but no, that is not my object lesson. Uh, my object lesson Too bad, is, out of not, time. <laughs> is not Corvid related. It's not even bird related. It is that on Friday, we are launching Lawfare Live, which is going to be awesome. It is going to uh, have a live on Crowdcast conversations with super interesting people, your opportunity to ask questions of Lawfare authors about their pieces. We will also be doing ahem, live podcast tapings. We did two of them last week for the Lawfare podcast. We will be doing Rational Security live one of these days coming up. We've done that too. We like that. Yeah, but it's much cooler when you do it on Crowdcast than when you do it on Zoom. Mm -hmm. It's super fun. And all you have to do is sign up at Lawfare's Patreon. And uh, this is uh, our first ever uh, not available to the general public product. Everything that is on Lawfare, including Rational Security and the Lawfare podcast, will always remain free. But Lawfare Live is an attempt to generate revenue for the site, you know, keep us in business, that sort of thing. So go ahead, sign up. The launch is Friday. We will be having Bob Bauer and Jack Goldsmith taking your questions about their new book, After Trump, uh, which is an amazing piece of work. So sign up and register on Crowdcast for the launch on Friday at noon Eastern time. And we will be doing Lawfare Live things at least once a week from now until the end of time. Nice. And Jack and Bob have gotten great play for that book too. You should, this is your Lawfare's first foray into book publishing. Yeah. It is. We, ha- we, are, we are. So now we have published the book mm-hmm. and we now have of a mechanism for you to ask questions about the book. About the book. See, no crows, no ravens, no magpies. I'm very disappointed. Um, my object, I want to flag for readers a new publication, uh, new-ish, I guess it's been on the scene for, what, a couple of weeks now, probably a couple of months, actually, is uh, Spy Talk uh, by the veteran national security correspondent Jeff Stein, which a lot of people who listen to the podcast probably have seen him on Twitter or know his bylines previously from Newsweek, The Washington Post, 
He was the founding editor of CQ Homeland Security. It's a very cool site with a lot of interesting articles, a nice variety of newsy stuff, sort of more featurey. They got a very nice shout out recently in Politico calling them a must read. Uh, I think rational security listeners will likely find something of interest there. Um, it's actually at spytalk.substack.com. You can go there. You can send up for a daily email. You can follow Jeff on Twitter, of course. Uh, the site has all of that, but uh, check them out. It's, uh, it's, it's nice to see another group of people jumping into this coverage area, particularly um, folks with as much experience as Jeff and his colleagues. But until then, that's it, guys. That's the end. Well, not the end. It's just the end for today. Just for this week. We'll see each other again. Don't cry. I can hear you all crying out there. The world will be better next week. <laughs> no, it won't. <laughs> oh, you say that now, Susan. <laughs> Hold the tape. <laughs> Rational Security is, of course, a production of Lawfare. You can find our show page well, at Lawfare. We'll oh, wow. I don't know what is wrong with your microphone, but we're losing listeners by the second. <laughs> you can sign up for singing lessons at lawfarestore.me. <laughs> Take Ben's mic. Don't know where. Are you going to do this the whole way out? <laughs> no, I just, you know. It's a move. Yeah. Zachary, can you cut him off, please? You can follow us on Twitter at RATL Security. You can, of course, find us on Facebook. Whenever you download the podcast, please leave a rating and review about the podcast, not Ben singing voice. It really helps others find the show, and we appreciate your comments. Our audio engineer this week is Zachary Frank from Goat Rodeo. The show is edited and produced by Jen Patia Howell. Uh, music this week by Donald Trump, just in time for Halloween, with his rendition of the Alice Cooper classic, The Man Behind the Mask. Oh, nice. <laughs> I like it. It's it actually, works. he's back, Perrin, the man behind <laughs> this. Just, just for the purists out there. Fun fact, anybody know what movie that was the theme song for? I know one listener right now who already knows the answer. The answer is Friday the 13th, part six, Jason Lives. Not Jason Live, Jason Lives. Are you married to the person who knows the answer? <laughs> Let's put it this way. It's probably not Sophia Yan. On behalf of my good friends, Ben Wittes, Tamara Coffin Wittes, and Susan Hennessy, and Sophia might be a big Friday the 13th fan too, uh, I'm Shane Harris, and we will talk to you next week. Bye-bye. Wear your mask. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.